All right. Everybody good? Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We have like a bit of like Old Testament understanding of God, like jumping up and going, hey, I'm in the New Testament now. Um, and so I, I want to talk about like so many aspects of this story, but I don't have time in one Sunday. So I'm going to break this into two weeks. This week, we're going to talk about the sin that they committed. What was it? What's happening? I mean, you told a lot, you held some money back. You didn't give all your money and so you died. Like, what is that? Um, so we're going to talk about that. Next week, we're going to talk about what happened. Like, why did they die? What does this mean? What does this say about God? Because if God is revealed in Jesus and Jesus, it appears, would never do this, why is this happening now at the start of the church? Um, and how has this been understood in like the early church? Um, and the, if you've been following along on my, sounds weird to say, if you've been following along on my blog, um, uh, the, uh, I've been writing about uh, pacifism of the early church fathers and how they understood um, the message of Christ in, as a response to violence of the world. Um, and so knowing what we know about them now, how did they read texts like this? And so next week, we're going to dive into like sort of who is God and all of that stuff and, and why are these people dead, these two. Uh, this week, um, we're actually going to talk more about Satan than God. Welcome to Watermark. Um, we, we're going um, to, because he says something here that paints this sort of dichotomy of like living in the spirit and being filled, like being filled with the spirit or being filled with apparently Satan, Peter says. What is this? So there's so many aspects to this that I want to like, I, I want to dive into all of it. So uh, this, that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to talk about um, sort of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to talk about what it means to um, be filled with Satan, as he says here. Um, and, I, you know, I sort of want to sort of give you some ideas, not so much how to think about Satan, but how not to think about Satan. I don't know. Epiphatic, if you will. Um, okay, so let's pray and let's, uh, and let's jump into this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would be here present with us, that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us some things that we need to see, that we need to understand. Um, I ask that you would uh, allow me to be present here, allow all of us to be present and not sort of far away, but, but here. Um, Speak through me. Allow me to remember the things that I've studied this week. Allow me to communicate clearly. Allow all of this to sort of flow together and create sort of a, an adequate picture of what we need to see um, in, in this first week in this passage. Um, give us peace. Above all, give us mercy. And let us understand your love and your grace. Help us to um, be open to, to the message that you have for us. It's difficult to change our perceptions of you. And you are asking us to do it all the time the same way that you asked the apostles to do so. And so they ha help us like them, sort of how they're having to learn to embrace this Trinitarian God, which was brand new and didn't make sense. Help us to understand um, that there are aspects that we have not embraced as well. And let us learn them and embrace them and be fashioned in your image. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay. So, oh, we're, oh man, I don't got a lot of time. Let's go. Um, uh, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the feet of the apostles. Okay, so Luke is going to tell us two different stories about two different people, technically three, but I'm going to count Ananias and Sapphira as one um, figure. 
And Luke is always doing this. The gospel writers are always doing this, giving dichotomies. Here's what it means. Here's what it looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. Here's what it means when you're not. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like when you're a follower of Jesus. Here's what it looks like when you're a follower of sort of the temple or the governments of the world. Um, Here's what it looks like when Jesus is your king, and here's what it looks like when he's not. So the first one we have is a picture of somebody led by the Spirit of God. Um, The apostles' feet take the place of, like we talked about last week, the apostles' feet now take the place of the, um, the altar in the temple. The people take the place of the temple itself. Um, the feet of the apostles is where you exercise obedience. It was this public declaration of, this is my obedience to God. And so this man, Joseph, um, sees that there is a need in the church. Some people are in need. They're hungry. They don't have food to live. And he sells some land that he has. Now, a few things we can tell from this. First off, he's high class. He's high status um, because he owns land. Um, Also, He has been unfaithful in his life to Judaism. You know how we know this? The Levites weren't allowed to own land. He's a Levite, Luke tells us. The Levites were the priests, and the priests were sort of like the clergy. They had taken vows of sort of poverty, if you will. They weren't allowed to own land, and they ate whatever came through the temple, and they would live in the temple quarters. Uh, So he's a Levite who owned land. So he had used sort of wealth and money to climb the status of the Roman Empire, Um, he would have been a very high-status person running in high-status circles, very wealthy circles. And he's from Cyprus, so he's also a Jew of the diaspora in the scattering of the Jews. He has lived somewhere else, and he he is probably in Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals where he met the Christians, became a follower of Jesus, and now is turning on his old life, and he's selling the things that make him high-status because someone is in need. This is how the early Christians lived, Um, as a picture of Jesus. The greatest picture of Jesus that there was is this picture that he's on high and he's sitting on his throne, ruling over everything, the highest of all beings in in all of the cosmos. And he gives up his power and his privilege to enter into communication and communion and relationship with human beings, with you and I. And so the Christians lived this way. Paul lived this way. He gave up so much to become a Tarshish linen worker and and tent maker, which was the lowest of all occupations in the ancient world. And he gave up all of that to to enter into relationships with people who could not be in relationship with him because of the the unevenness of their status. This man, Joseph, is doing the same thing. He's bridging the gap. He's, He's eliminating the unevenness between the people in the church. They're using money in a way that the world was not using it. The world uses money, again, to create unevenness. Christians use money to eliminate unevenness in the world. This is our role. This is how we are to handle our finances. So this man, he sells, he sells it, and he brings and puts the money at the, at the apostles' feet. Next, we have the, um, the <clears throat> sort of the alter ego figure. We have Ananias and Sapphira. And so this is sort of what it looks like on the opposite end of the spectrum. A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, they're making a deliberate decision. Um, They are also high status. Anyone who owns land, again, is very wealthy in the ancient world, very rare, running in high status circles. And they want to hold on to this. However, Ananias and Sapphira have joined the church, and they want to benefit also from the community of the church. The message is compelling, and they want to be a part of this. They also want to include probably this God in their pantheon of gods. It appears that they're not completely allegiant to Christ alone um, because they are attempting to hold on to 
some of the wealth that keeps them in the high status. This is not about the amount of money they gave. This is not about even holding some back. This is what it means to hold something back in the ancient world, is you're holding on to something that puts you above other people. Um, and it was the biggest thing in all of the ancient world was this sort of um, honor status society. Paul is constantly trying to rid the early church of this. He writes to the church in Corinth. He says, you have wealthy people who are getting there early and having the communion meal before the poor people can get there so they don't have to eat with them so they don't lose status. That is not welcome in the church. We are all equals. We are all brothers and sisters. And the highest are actually the lowest and the lowest are considered the most valuable to us. And so Ananias and Sapphira see an opportunity um, where they can act like Roman benefactors. One of the ways you would gain a lot of status in the ancient world is by being a benefactor, by donating a lot of money to impoverished people. And it raises your honor and your glory in the community. So they're going to both maintain their wealth and they're going to become benefactors. And so they're going to raise their status in the church as a gift. They're also going to raise their status in Rome by, by giving as a benefactor, but also still remaining wealthy. This is not just a lie. Um, this is a huge deal uh, for these ancient people. You cannot maintain the admiration of the high-status people in the Greco-Roman world unless you have wealth or land. And when people are in need, Joseph gave up his power and privilege to serve the people in need. And this uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias apparently hatches the plan. He owns the money anyways. His wife wouldn't have been allowed probably to own any money in that day. Um, and so what we have is Ananias forging this plan, devising this plan to have it both ways, the appearance of full devotion to the kingdom of Christ and all the benefits also of the Roman world. So he's got one foot in each world. He is attempting to serve both God and money. He's attempting to do this. And it doesn't seem that it goes well. Now, um, both of them bring the money to the apostles' feet. So this is apparently a, a public act of devotion, except Ananias is faking it. His devotion is not fully faith in Christ. Faith is the Greek word pistis, which means allegiance. He's not allegiant to Christ. He's allegiant to Rome. He's allegiant to the money and the power, to all of that. So um, let's go a little farther, if we could. Let's go to the next verse. It says, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money uh, that you received for the land? What was the sin? Well, the sin, it wasn't lying. It wasn't even necessarily holding back. It wasn't necessarily even collusion with his wife. It was, um, it, was, it was this act of public devotion and obedience and sacrifice that, that was all a lie, that was meant to be self-serving. Um, Luke has told us that there were some in need, obviously some in need. One of them gave everything and did the right thing. One of them saw people in need as an opportunity for enrichment of their own selves. One of them saw the, uh, the need of someone else as an opportunity for them to be the philanthropist and have their name put on something that is great. Um, this is tradition in our society. We, we actually coax people into giving to the needy by saying, we'll give you honor. We'll put your name on the side of the thing. We'll get you a plaque on the, on the park bench if you'll help us build this park. These kids need somewhere to play. And they're like, well, I don't know. We'll put your name on the plaque. Can it be a big plaque? Sure. Okay, that's fine. Can you have a picture of me too so people know exactly what I look like? Yes, we can do that. And this is how sort of we, 
we're very Roman uh, in America over the, over the last century. We've become very, very much into sort of this Roman ideals and Roman understanding. But their hearts was so full of themselves, their lust for status, that they were so devoted to the patterns of this world. And that's how Paul describes, when Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, this is what he's talking about. The unevenness of the world. Um, and how to play their games and how to climb the ladders. Um, this is what Paul is talking about. Uh, the patterns of the world. They saw the need of others as an opportunity for personal gain in the public square. This is exactly what was wrong with the temple. This is exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. This is what Jesus confronts over and over and over. The biggest topic, you may be surprised to learn that the biggest topic, the most written about topic in all of scriptures is money and how we handle it. And there's this constant theme throughout the scriptures um, where this word, if you look up how the word oikos is used, um, sometimes it's spoken of, it's translated as like house, what kind of house are you going to build me? But it's really a word that literally translates to economy. Oikos is how, where we get our word economy. And God is saying, what kind of economy are you going to build me amongst my people? You can look at the world and you can see that they're driven by lust and greed and desire for themselves over each other. But in the church, at the sacred table, where I feed everyone, what kind of economy amongst yourselves are you going to build? And over and over again, the temple becomes an economy that looks exactly like Rome. And they are playing the wealth and status game. Jesus calls them out on it. Oopsie, I hit the wrong button. Okay, here we go. Jesus calls them out on it. He says, everything that they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. It's talking about the dress that they wear that makes them look religious. Sort of these wings and these long tassels. They make them as big as possible so everyone can see how religious that they are. Because um, it was about religious status as well. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called a rabbi by others. Um, it cannot creep in again. It can't. The early church understands right away, this is what went wrong before. People worship themselves in the place where they are supposed to worship God. And they neglect the image of God in other people to, to better sort of paint them up as this great image of a human being. When Jesus is the ultimate image of a human being. And we, we want people to look at us. And so the whole idea here is this cannot happen again. It can, we cannot let it destroy the church the way it destroyed the temple. Uh, this attitude caused the very downfall of God's people. Um, this is what it means, by the way, to take the name of the Lord in vain. This is what it means. We, you know, growing up, I was always told, you know, uh, don't say, don't say, oh my God. Don't say, when you hit your thumb with the hammer, don't say the name Jesus Christ. Don't say, don't, don't use any of these, don't say God's name um, unless you're actually talking about like theology or talking about God. Don't just say the name of God. And I say, why? And they say, because that means it's you're taking the name of God in vain. You're not using it in a sentence sort of about God. And I said, can you explain to me how that's offensive? And they're like, well, the Bible says not to do that. And I said, so if I hit my thumb and I say, dad, is that offensive to you? Is no. I'm like, how is it offensive to God? And it's never clicked with me. It never made sense with me. And I, I don't do that, by the way. I don't yell God's name. I don't walk around like slamming doors and yelling God's name. Um, but 
I, 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 don't, I don't understand it. I think I deconstructed it. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but to take the name of the Lord in vain um, is very much what they would, it is conforming yourself um, uh, to the patterns of this world and then using the name of Jesus to defend your evil actions. That's, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what it is. Yet it's something we're actually all doing all the time and we're just saying the Lord's name in vain is something else and we don't do that and we actually do this. Um, it is twisting the words of God to justify your evil deeds. It is quoting a single passage of scripture to raise yourself up and push someone else down. It is using the Bible to oppress other people. Um, it is using the Bible to excuse yourself from your actual um, responsibility to love and take care of your fellow human beings. It is ignoring the entire Sermon on the Mount and then appealing to passages like Romans 13 to make others submit to your own positions of authority. This is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. To ignore everything that Jesus says about loving your enemy and turning the other cheek and providing for the poor and then quote Romans 13 and say, submit to me. It says here, you have to. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. You're taking the message of God and you're twisting it to be a message about you and your ability and your power and the unevenness between you and the people around you. Because the name of the Lord is holy and different and it brings peace and it brings reconciliation and it lowers you. It doesn't lift you up. It doesn't put you above other people. And to lay on even all, all the irony in the world, we have changed the very meaning of taking God's name in vain and made it, made it, we designate it to an empty action that anyone can accidentally commit. If you can accidentally take the Lord's name in vain, you're probably describing it wrong. It is, it is a deceit of your heart. It is a deep-seated thing. So at the same time, like Ananias and Sapphira, we hatch these plans in full view of God and others to glorify ourselves in the church. And we de-sort of glorify Jesus. We remove Jesus from his place over our lives. This is a special kind of wrong it, because it comes with the attitude um, of deception. It makes others think that you are righteous um, while you are filled with evil. There's a special kind of deception there that stands up and pretends to be righteous around all these people who are being honest about their struggles and about their sins, and for you to stand there and somehow, like Ananias and Sapphira, to pretend that you have it all together and that you are blessed and that you are righteous and that you're doing this beautiful act that no one else can even attain, and they're over here confessing their sins, looking at you like, I just wish I could be like this person, and you're smiling and it makes you feel good, and the whole thing is a lie, and it's not just a lie, it's an oppressive lie because these people believe that you are better than them and they cannot match up to what you're doing. And it makes them feel even lower and lower and lower. And so the fake faith and the fake allegiance to Christ and the fake humility, the fake righteousness, it hurts and damages the journeys, the spiritual lives of everyone being honest and trying to move forward. You are throwing a stumbling block in their path and helping them to trip over it so they can never actually get close enough and see what you're really doing. And so we keep going with Acts 5, 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? 
Have you not lied? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now, <clears throat> there's a gap between verse 2 and 3. We don't know how Peter knows. We don't know if somebody that saw the sale of the land that was a witness to it is a member of the church and is seeing this and tells him. We don't know if somebody came to him and confessed. We don't know if, if, if he received some divine revelation. It doesn't tell us. Um, and so we kind of read into it sort of our sort of faith traditions. The more progressives would be like, oh, he must have heard somewhere. And then, and then the ones who take like spiritual warfare and stuff seriously, they're like, it's a divine revelation from God. Either way, it's fine. Um, Peter knows, he understands, and he's, and, he's, and he's standing in front of these people and he's confronting this. Um, and so he tells him that how has Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourselves uh, some of the money you received for the land? So... <clears throat> I want to take a few minutes and I want to talk about Satan, if you will. Um, I want to spend a few minutes here and give you some sort of examples, do a small survey of, <clears throat> of the different ways that sort of Satan is described in scriptures. Um, and then I'm going to sort of present something to you in a way that you can like think about this or really a way you cannot think about this. You'll, you'll see. Um, so uh, we, so do you know where the word Satan comes from? Um, it, is, it doesn't come actually out of the Bible. It comes from ancient Persia. The word is hasatan. It means the accuser. Um, and if you read it in the Greek, it literally says, uh, it translates to the accuser. We are, wherever you hear the word, either the devil or Satan, it's going to say the accuser. There's over 21 different words for Satan. And they all sort of lean towards this idea. But the idea was, in ancient Persia, there were these soldiers who would dress like civilians and, and move out amongst the people and disguise themselves amongst the people. Um, and they were called hasatan, the accusers. Um, and they would basically go out and they were looking for people who were not, uh, who didn't exercise allegiance to the king. And they would sort of trick people into saying blasphemous stuff against the king and then have them arrested. We have letters from people like Epictetus who writes about this, um, who apparently saw this happen a few times. And he says, when someone gives us the impression of having talked to us frankly about his personal affairs, somehow or other, we are likewise led to tell him of our secrets. Uh, in this fashion, the rash are ensnared by the soldiers in Rome. A soldier dressed like a civilian, he sits down by your side and begins to speak ill of Caesar. And then you too, just as though you had received from him uh, some guarantee of good faith in the acts that he began, in the, that he began the abuse, Tell likewise everything you think. And the next thing is, you are let off to prison in chains. And so it's this secret sort of person who would sit across from you and they would coax you into saying evil things to have you thrown in prison and expose your hatred of the king. Um, and they were out there doing this. It was sort of the secret way of keeping the peace among the people. So this word is used in scripture several different places. You see in the book of Job, um, this is the idea. You have Job, uh, in the book of Job, um, at the very sort of, Job is likely the oldest book in the scriptures, and it paints this picture of Satan being a member of the king's court, of God's court, and he's there, and, and he's actually serving God, and they're having this conversation. It says, on the day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them, because he's one of God's sort of people, um, and this is the very idea of the accuser, the ancient Persian sort of idea. It's in the scriptures as well, and he says, um, Job is, has so much allegiance to me and so much trust, and he's, he's such a, he, his allegiance to me is strong. And, and then Satan steps up and says, is he though? I think we should test this. And so the accuser goes to town. 
to try to prove that he doesn't have as much allegiance as the king thinks that he does. So, um, this is the same phrase that is used by Peter speaking to Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, he says, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? This is how he's taking the idea of Satan and attaching it to Ananias and Sapphira. This is the ancient word. This is the ancient idea. And so he's taking this idea and he says, you are filled with Satan. You are this in my presence. You're secretly testing us. And you're secretly coming before us um, pretending that you are one thing when you are not that at all. How is it that Satan has filled your heart? And then um, there are other, many other instances. The second one I want to look at, I want to look at four of them, really. That was the first. The second one is in Matthew, where Jesus is speaking to Peter. Um, and Jesus is telling Peter, this same Peter right here, um, he's telling Peter, um, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be killed. That's a, a low status, low honor thing. Like, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be killed. All the, all the apostles and the disciples believe you are going to rise to power and are going to become king and rule over everyone. How could you speak like this in that way? There's no way we can accomplish what, what you are setting out to accomplish and be the Messiah if you die, if you're crucified in this horrible, dishonorable way where you're stripped naked and hung, your beard is ripped out, you're hung for all to see on the side of the road. That would tarnish all of us, and we could never do what we're thinking of doing, what we want to do. And so, um, Peter basically looks at Jesus, and he says, that's not going to happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Um, he says, no, you're destined for greatness. And Jesus says, I'm not destined for earthly greatness. You're confusing me with an earthly king. You're confusing me as someone who is even mildly concerned with the wealth and power and status of this world. I'm not. And being dishonored publicly and shamed and crucified and scorned, it does nothing to me because I'm not concerned with the things the world is concerned with. And those who are concerned with, this thing, with these things are followers of these evil kings who are themselves indwelled by Satan. And so if you're pretending, if, you, if you're speaking the words that are encouraging people in the path of the world, you are acting as a minion of the accuser, of the devil, of Satan. Um, and this is how he's speaking of him. Um, in Isaiah, the third example I want to give you is Isaiah speaks um, he writes about the people's captivity in Babylon. And there's this king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is evil. Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as the high God above all other gods. And Isaiah writes about language about Nebuchadnezzar. And he speaks about Nebuchadnezzar as Satan. And he calls him uh, the morning star, which is the word that translates, it's the word Lucifer. He says, you have... How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, uh, son, of the, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low to the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon, uh, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And this happened when Nebuchadnezzar stands and declares himself the high God, and he is cast down and becomes like a beast, like the lowest beast of the field for a time being. And his hair grows long and his nails grow out and he eats grass and lives with the cows. <laughs> um, as a way of like saying, you are nothing. Now, I was raised always being taught like this is the story of Satan. I mean, 
Technically, yes, we're pulling that out of context. He's specifically talking about Nebuchadnezzar and he's prophesying about what would happen to Nebuchadnezzar and it did happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but nevertheless, this idea of Satan being present in the high kings is prevalent. It's everywhere. In this, these, every king that existed in the ancient world in the minds of God's people existed over and against their king, Yahweh. In the same way in the minds of the early Christians, every king of Rome that existed, every king everywhere, every emperor that existed only existed against Jesus Christ, their king. And so they followed Jesus and they didn't follow Caesar. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Caesar is the beast, Caesar is Satan, Caesar is the dragon. The leaders that, that claim power over God's people, all of God's people that God has created, um, they are not. They are against God. They are the presence of Satan in this world. Um, and then we have, where are we? Okay, Matthew chapter four. This is the same temptation that Jesus faced when he's in the, de in, in, uh, in the desert and he meets Satan face to face there. And it says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in, and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. There it is. You can have power, you can have wealth, you can have all the things in the world that you want, but in order to get it, you're going to have to worship the Satan. Uh, and Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so Jesus, the stand-in for Israel, will succeed where, where Israel has failed over and over and over because every time they chased after other idols, the only reason they did it was because they wanted wealth and status and power and the ability to stand on their own and be this mighty force in the world, to be represented in the world as these huge, important people. The last example I have for you of, uh, of, of sort of this picture of Satan in the scriptures comes from the book of Revelation. Um, and in the book of Revelation, it's written by this pastor named John. He's exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Um, it, it may be the same John that was an apostle um, to Jesus. It, it may not. There's not full consensus. It's honestly like 50-50. Um, however, he doesn't mince words. When he speaks of the emperor, he, he calls him the dragon. He calls him the beast. He calls him Satan himself. Some of his words go like this. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. And people worshiped the dragon. He's talking specifically about Nero and about Domitian, um, who placed him sort of in power. Um, uh, who worshiped the dragon because he had, he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? He's so strong. His military might is greater than every other nation in the world. They're powerful. They're the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Who can stand against them? And we worship the beast because of his power and his might. And the lamb who was slain is the true king who is standing behind you, just buying and calling for your attention and saying, all of this display of power will fall because it's, it's led by Satan. And even the weakest being in the world, the most gentle, fragile lamb, in the, led by the Spirit and with the presence of God, is the most powerful creature in the universe. He doesn't need the army. He doesn't need the swords. He doesn't need the chariots. He doesn't need any of it. Um, and so what we see in the scriptures, we see um, this really interesting picture of this spiritual enemy. Sometimes um, it is the emperors and the kings. And they would look at every emperor and the king and they would say they're an antichrist. They are, they are the not king. They are sort of this um, caricature of what Jesus actually is. 
Um, so sometimes the beast, Satan, is in the high power places in the world. Um, spiritual authority, spiritual darkness in high places, they would say. Um, <clears throat> but the problem is, when you simply relegate it to these places, you tend to miss it in yourself. And so sometimes the actual apostles of Jesus turn out to be the presence of Satan. When they're encouraging Jesus to seek earthly power and to seek the uneven power of the world. And then sometimes we see it in ourselves and sometimes we see it in other people in the church who are aligning people, doing their best to, even unknowingly, align people in the patterns of the world. This is what we see in Ananias and Sapphira, the presence of Satan there. And I think the best way, honestly, to talk about Satan is the same way that we would sort of talk about God. As the, as the creed, starting with the Nicene Creed in church history, went on, right around the, uh, the sixth and seventh creed you have, you end up with, like we talked about about a month ago, these what, what are called apophatic phrases. They're phrases in the negative. They're ways of describing God without describing God. Because what they found was every time you just try to describe the attributes of of the Trinity. Every time you try to lay out, here's exactly what the Trinity is and how it works. Every time you do this, you stumble into a heresy. You describe God in a way that violates the scriptures. There is no accurate way to describe the Trinitarian Godhead without honestly accidentally stumbling into some form of ancient heresy. And so what we are given is um, sort of this indescribable mystery, three in one, each submitting to the other, the, the perichoresis, the dance of God, but we are not given direct descriptions of how the relationship works. All we are given is in the later creeds, these, these things like without confusion, um, without separation. Here's a bunch of things that God is not. He is not separated. He is, uh, they're not interchangeable. They are separate, but they're not separated. You know what I mean? Like they're all you're given is these apophatic phrases to encourage you not to define God. And what you are given with the idea of Satan is sort of the same thing. Because when you try to define and say, here's exactly what it is, um, here's exactly how it works, and you, 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 once you name it all out, you like to think, now I, now I see it, and now I'll be able to um, locate it in the world. I'll be able to like, understand it and see it everywhere I go, because I've, I've laid it all out exactly what it looks like. And when you do this, you are suddenly blind to all the other places that it will pop up, including in your own heart. And so what we are given is these generalities. Um, I like to say, like people are always asking me to define Satan, and I don't. I say what he's not. I, I, I don't, and, and, you know, a lot of this is pure conjecture amongst like theologians and Bible scholars. Like, they all kind of speak differently, but my personal language is like, it's not, a, it's not a person, but it's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. Um, and it's probably not what you're thinking. Um, but it's very real. And in fact, I don't think you should try to define it because then you're closed off to all the other appearances that it can take, including in your own heart. And so... When Peter looks at Ananias and he says, what made you think of doing such a thing? What in the world, what in the world caused you to devise a plan to somehow maintain status and power in the empire in which you live and then still climb the status and power righteousness level in your church? 
what made you think that this is the way forward for God's people? I mean, we could ask this of Christians all over America today. Like, what gave you that idea that God, that's what God wants us to do? In verse 3, he answers, then Peter said, Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you have received for the land. Satan filled your heart. And here's the thing. Oh, I'll be quick. I got this... I read a lot of church history this week, and I just want to talk about it just for a second. So the early church, the interesting thing is the early church can accidentally, they, they kind of point out here and there where they sort of inadvertently, accidentally become indwelled with Satan here and there. I'm just saying. Like, I, I, I tentatively titled this sermon, um, How to Get Cast as Satan. That's what I called it. Um, if you're looking for a role. How to Get Cast as Satan. Here's how. Um, and here's what happens. Um, the earliest days of Christianity, the first centuries or so, there was this sense of the true weight of Christian identity. This, this sense of it. By and large, the church saw no convergence between the hopes of the church and the aspirations of earthly rulers. The church wanted one thing, earthly rulers wanted another thing, and they did not cross paths pretty much anywhere. Um, and the early centuries, um, the life of the Christian communities were, were largely independent of the political affairs of societies around them. They were not formed by society. They were not formed by the culture around them. They were formed by Christ. They were formed by the communion table. They were formed by the message of the cross. These are the things that formed them. The culture, music, none of that formed them. They did not allow themselves to be formed. They were independent, holy, righteous people. And their worldview and the way that they lived and moved in the world was formed by Jesus. And that's it. And by the communion table. There were no stories of individual Christians. There were no Tim Tebow's who rose to prominence and power and then used their power and position to teach the gospel. They didn't do that. That's not what they were after. Um, there were no stories of individual Christians impacting the world in these huge ways, doing impressive works of any kind and using their platform. They were communities that acted as the faithful presence of Jesus together. They were a people who were a faithful presence of Jesus where they were, collectively. None of them would raise themselves up as an independent voice. Um, and so they were willing to give up, like Christ, whatever power and privilege they had in order to stay in relationship with other people. But all that changed in the fourth century uh, when Constantine arises and ascends to the throne. And when Constantine, the emperor, becomes a Christian, suddenly everything changes and nobody knows what to do. We have suddenly got power of, of a massive empire. As Christians, what do we do? And suddenly what happened was there was this prominent role in society and this new prominent role gave rise to the existence of what's called nominal Christianity. And nominal Christianity is basically a type of, Christi a type of worldly Christianity that's very concerned with status and power and how the world views us, that they don't disrespect us, that they, they, they leave our rights intact, and that, and, that they, and that they watch themselves around us. And this nominal Christianity had nothing really to do with allegiance to Jesus. People began to join the church because of social status that it brought. Millions of people began to join the church, not because they believed it or knew anything, but because it was what you did. Because status came along with it. I'm a Christian. Oh, me too. Let's go into business together. And let's get the business of other Christians. How will we do that? We'll put the Christian fish on the back of our car. And then people will flip a phone number. And then people, Christians, will call us and we'll have their business. And we know this is what we're doing. This is nominal Christianity. That's the definition of it. This is how it works. Um, and millions of people began to join the church in this way. Bishops rose to power, not because they were spiritual, but because these bishops had specific marketable skills of organization and things like that. Um, and they grew in richness, and they lived these opulent lives, and they still do. 
And this is actually what the American church is modeled after. This is actually, believe it or not, what Watermark is modeled after because this is what society expects. And so you can do no other. And so the goal here is to gather people to actually make Christ the center of it now and to push you into smaller communities like house churches. That's why we don't call them life groups or small groups or anything. They're churches. They are house churches. You must live together and take care of each other and see the need and pour yourselves out and ask yourself constantly, what power and privilege do I have that makes us uneven and how can I give that up to stay in relationship with these people? If there are people I cannot enter into a relationship with, what is keeping that from happening and how do I, like Christ, give up some things so I can enter into them? This is what it means to be the church. God's faithful presence in the world, in groups, in people, not persons, people. None of the New Testament is written to individuals except for the book of Philemon, but really that's written to a household. When, when Paul says, be gentle, be humble, be kind, he's not talking to you individually. He's talking to all of us. We are one. We are the body of Christ. But we are very susceptible to becoming the body of Satan. It happens every day. I'm going to stop there. Uh... Communion servers, why don't you guys go ahead and take the elements and uh, spread around the room. And I'm going to launch into communion pretty quick here because I I went long. I think the announcements went long, not me. Um, Let's let's pray. pray. And the singing went too long. Um, I'm just joking. Um, So, yeah, they're going to take the elements and spread around the room. Uh, You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, you don't even have to fully understand it. I don't, I don't need you to fully understand what's happening. It's a bit of a mystery, the communion table. Um, we all come to the table together. Um, uh, the, those who, who are um, very Christ-like and those who are not Christ-like at all, we come to the table together and we receive this, the same thing from Jesus. We receive the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us for our salvation, for our reconciliation, for our healing, um, for new identity. Um, for guidance into the path forward. And then Jesus says, follow me. And it's a guidance into how you should live. Us as a body, broken and poured out for the world. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Be with us during communion. Help us to be a people who pour ourselves out for you. Let us purge our hearts of all sort of nominal Christianity. Let us be a separate people formed not by our cultures, not by even... Um, our desires and wants for status and success, I pray that we would be formed by the communion table, that we would be formed by the cross, uh, what it means to live a life that models that for the world to see. When they look at us, may they see you. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.